Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello, and welcome back to Unstruct. In this episode, I talk with Natalie Regan, P-E-S-E. Natalie is the founder and owner of NLP Concepts located in Chicago, Illinois. NLP is Chicago's leading residential shoring design structural engineer. So those of you that are located in more urban settings, maybe this is something you've heard of and had to personally deal with before, but those of you that live in more rural areas such as myself, this might be something completely new. So I found it very fascinating, but as you can imagine in heavily populated areas, land is a scarce commodity, meaning that every square foot is used in design. So a lot of times, even in residential applications or residential areas, homes are located very close together, sometimes less than four feet apart, sometimes actually sharing a foundation wall at the property line as well. So when you make modifications to your foundation, such as putting in a deeper basement or maybe putting it in a basement where there wasn't one previously, you could potentially be impacting or negatively impacting your neighbor structure as well, which is where Natalie and her firm NLP come into play prior to building the new structure and come in with some shoring design and some temporary stabilization techniques so that everybody's structure remains safe and in place and the new structure can go in and allow for, you know, something that maybe couldn't have been there before if these modifications weren't made during construction. So I will leave it at that and hand it over to Natalie to talk through kind of what this looks like and how to address this during construction. So enjoy. 
Natalie, if you could maybe just explain to us a little bit in a little more detail as to kind of what goes on and what is happening when you're digging perhaps maybe a new foundation or a new basement next to an existing structure and what has to happen in that case. Sure. So when you're excavating for a basement for a new project or a new building, you're digging down deep. And then with Chicago and, you know, there's other areas that are, you know, like the denser cities, the buildings are relatively close. So for instance, Chicago, there's a lot of property line buildings. And even when they're not right on the property line, say your neighbor doesn't have a basement or a crawl space and they're three or four feet deep and you're building just a few feet away, but you're going down like nine, 10 feet, then you really have to hold up the dirt and the neighbor's building while you're digging and while you're pouring your foundation and, you know, why it's solidifying before you can backfill and the neighbor's building is stable. So it's called an earth retention design. We do a lot of this and you're basically, you're protecting the workers that are working in the, the hole and you're protecting the neighbor's property. So it's not coming in the hole. Sure. That makes sense. So for permitting this, which we really don't deal with, but permitting when the expediter or the architect, whoever's getting the permit, they have to send notices to the neighbor that we're doing excavation this deep within so many feet of their property. Most of the time, that's it. Sometimes the neighbors will hire their own structural engineer or want to know what we're doing or have more concerns. So it all depends. It's project to project. So they are notified. Now, from what I understand, because I don't usually, you know, I provide the service for the client doing the building. So, you know, they're the ones who get the actual design. I don't know that they have to provide it to the neighbors. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Usually when it, you know, when there's another neighbor involved, there's like lawyers involved. So we kind of, you know, just assist with what we need to. But it's always helpful if the neighbor's involved on good terms in the beginning, because when we're looking at properties to shore, we're guessing how deep they are. So if we can get into the neighbor's house and actually get confirmation on how deep they are, it makes our design more accurate. Sure. That makes sense. What materials typically used for these earth retention systems? In Chicago, we usually use a steel sheet piling. In Chicago, there's different systems for different areas. First, specifically in the city of Chicago, we're limited to go down to 12 feet. We can't go below 12 feet without getting special permission. Special permission is approval for the Board of Underground, which takes a long time. So we try to stay out of that. So we usually do a steel sheet, which goes about 12 feet. But with 12 feet, you're limited. You usually have to add a brace, which we use a steel, steel braces to kind of either hold them up, give it some extra lateral support. In the suburbs, sometimes they go deeper and we have more room and we'll use like a, an H pile with some lagging. So we've done all different types, but in the city, it's specifically usually sheet piling. Okay. So let me ask you a question regarding the sheet piling. So if you are digging down 10 feet or if that basement is 10 feet below existing grade, does the sheet piling have to go deeper than the 10 feet, but still be limited by the 12 foot requirement from the jurisdiction? Yes, that's all. That's a huge problem because, you know, usually if a someone comes and they're in the city and they want to go deeper than 10 feet, we'll pass on the job because it will go to the Board of Underground. Because if you think about that, your shoring is 
is out of the ground 10 feet and we're limited to that 12 foot. So that means your shoring is sticking out of the ground 10 feet and in the ground two feet. Mm-hmm. Then we have to add a bunch of braces. Usually we can do, we can get away with a 10 foot and it all depends on the soils type as well. Different soils hurt us, water tables hurt us. So it depends where the dig is, where we have to place braces. And the braces usually go across the site or diagonal. So they cut through the foundation wall and they have to block and they get very complicated and very expensive for these deep basements. Yeah. Well, and just to back up a little bit to some kind of engineering thought process or engineering theory here for those of our listeners that maybe aren't familiar. So when we are retaining something, so soil has a horizontal pressure that it puts on any sort of element. So if the height of soil on one side is lower than it is on the other side, there's a very significant horizontal force from that soil that has to be resisted. And the way that we as structural engineers resist that is to go down lower below that lowest grade elevation to get what we call as passive resistance. So it actually pushes back against it to keep it stable. So that's kind of what Natalie's talking about. Like we have to go down lower than the actual excavation to get stability out of the system. So when there's that very tight window of you're digging down 10 feet, but you can only go 12 feet to limit that kind of pushback or that resistance that we're counting on. It makes it really tricky. And then you have to do all of these other things that you're talking about with the bracing, correct? Yeah. So for instance, I'm dealing with a village called Park Ridge right now, and they don't have that limit, the 12 foot. So we can do a lot more cantilever systems, which are better for the construction of the foundation wall because the cantilever system you don't have anything crossing through the foundation so when we don't have that limit it makes it easier on us but you know that limit is always a problem in Chicago and and the things I've seen blow your mind about people not understanding you know I always try to explain to them imagine you're taking a, a post and you're sticking in the ground you know, they don't understand why it doesn't work without a brace. But if you imagine if you're sticking a post in the ground two feet and it's holding 10 feet of lateral force above, it's it's not going to work. Right. So, and, you know, we usually also, the water tables are around seven feet. And once you have a water table like that, it causes a problem. So do you have to dewater as well? Like, do you have to get involved with that at all? Or is that more on the contractor? It's a soils engineer and the contractor. So they'll try to keep it above also for the soils and you don't want to have like water coming in your basement and pushing up the slab. Right, exactly. Yeah. So then it's more of a long-term deal too. So it's not, it's more than just the temporary construction condition, but long-term as well. So on the soil retention side, is that wall or that sheet piling that's put in, is that left in place then? Or is that removed once a foundation wall is in place? The sheet piling has to remain in place because if you think about it, it's taking up space. And then when you pull it out, then everything moves again. So okay, we're talking about movement also. The city depends on where you are, but for specifically Chicago, they limit us to about 0.3 inches of movement, which is nothing. So that's another reason we can't use cantilever sheeting a lot of times in the city because it has to rotate a little bit to stick. Mm-hmm. You know, a sheeting cantilever sheet, like you said, the passive force, you put it in, everything kind of moves to get to the equivalent point. So it moves a little. You can't do that in Chicago. So for that, the sheeting is anywhere from like three to six inches deep. And if you were to pull that out, that void is now 
there and it's going to move. So that would cause problems. We do require that they cut it down below grade, at least 18 inches. Okay. Some villages have different rules, but basically once you're done with the sheeting, the braces and the whalers come off. That's like the lateral braces. The sheet stays and you cut it below grade. It just kind of stays there forever. Okay. So is that helpful for you? Like, do you ever have a case where maybe someone's doing remodeling or digging down again and there's already a sheet piling in place to help stabilize the soil? Or is that just like a temporary thing and really not counted on for future use if there's future remodeling? Well, I'm going to say remodeling, but I have dealt, I've done so many, I do so many here in Chicago. There's many times where we've done a building and then like three years later, the neighbor then knocks down their building and we can utilize the sheet that's there because I know what's there because I designed the other building. So a lot of times you can use it. So it depends where the sheet is on the property. If the sheet is right on the property line, um, what sheet was used But a lot of times, because I've done so many in the city that I do come across probably, you know, one every week that has sheet from another project I've done. Okay. But over time, that stuff, it's sitting in wet soil. It does kind of deteriorate. You know, it's not the same as the sheet piling that's put into water that's treated for that, you know. So a lot of times the stuff kind of does disintegrate over time. Sure. Because it's steel that's probably not treated for being long-term. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Installed. Okay. Gotcha. So on these projects, are you also the engineer of record for the new construction or is it a separate deal? Is the earth retention side of it separate or is that like, are you the engineer of record as well? Sometimes and sometimes not. If we do the building, usually we do the shoring. Not many people do earth retention. We're one of, you know, only a few engineers. So A lot of times if someone hires a different structural engineer and it comes time to do earth retention, they won't do it. And then they'll contact us. So we probably do 75% of the earth retention design in Chicago and just 20% of the building design. Gotcha. Makes sense because many other structural engineers that do building design, there's not many that do earth retention. So are you being hired by the contractor to do the earth retention or by the homeowner? It depends. If we're involved in the very beginning, we're hired by the owner of the building. Sometimes, you know, the city requires this for permitting, but a lot of times people will just, there's a form. A lot of times it will just get stamped no, and they'll get their permit. And then when the excavator comes in, they're like, oh no, we need to shore this. And then they'll, you know, contact us after the fact. And usually then it's the contractor that will contact us if they already have their permit. But if we're invited we're involved in the permit side, helping them get the permit, then it's usually the owner. Okay. To me, that sounds a lot less stressful than a backhoe being there waiting for a design. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is and it isn't because when you get involved later, which is when I feel like we should really be getting involved because like I said, when you're involved in the very beginning, the buildings are all there. So you're, you're guessing, okay, I don't know how deep this building is. A lot of the neighbors won't let us in. So we're just guessing. So we could do a whole, and I've done it, where we've done this design with the city, corrections, it's taken a long time, a lot of comments for, you know, a deep dig next to buildings that only had three foot six. And then in the end of the day, when we knock the building down and we get to see underground, they both have deep foundations and we wasted all that time. So I personally would rather be involved later because 
if the hole is dug, they can usually do a test pit if the buildings are close and they can tell us exactly where the neighbor is versus guessing, making all this work when maybe it's not needed. So, you know, I kind of like being involved later too. It's, I feel like dealing with the contractors, they've done this a billion times. They kind of understand where when you're dealing with the owners, they have a lot of questions and some of the things they don't understand about how these go in. And also these are very expensive. So when you're doing these big designs anticipating, I mean, they're getting quotes of like $200,000 and they don't want to spend $200,000 on stuff that's just temporary, but it's necessary. So I feel like later it's almost better because you can dig it out and kind of show them like, this is why you need this. Yeah. Well, and like you said, then you you kind of get a little, maybe not the full picture of what's going on with the soil and with grade and, you know, the neighboring property and what's there for foundations currently, but you get a lot better picture than just guessing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Sometimes they have soils reports. Sometimes they don't. You know, even on the soils report, they're doing, if the building's there and you're doing it way ahead of time, they can only take a boring at the front yard or at the back. You're not getting a real accurate idea. So that's the other thing. They might have a boring that comes back with a ton of fill and you're designing this really high-end system to take out all this bad fill. And then once they dig, it's really only in the one spot. So I prefer to see what the dirt looks like and kind of get a better idea of what we're dealing with. Then in the beginning, it's a lot of guesswork in the city, they want a lot of detail. They want a lot of calcs for this because it's very risky. It's a, you know, it's, you're digging, it's, it's a safety issue, but on the other hand, you're doing a system based on guesswork and on estimates. Even if you do a soils report, that's a boring in the front and then the back and you get into the neighbor's basement and you're, you're still guessing of what's below the slab. Mm-hmm. It's always better to see the actual foundation. Yeah. Well, and like to your point, Natalie, like if you're guessing, like you're going to have to take a conservative approach, which means it's adding costs that maybe doesn't need to be there, but you don't know. So you have to be conservative. Yeah. And the city also, they have changed where in the beginning, you know, you kind of look at the building, you know, some of these have Chicago basements, garden basements, you can see they go down about four or five feet. Now the city, if you haven't specifically checked, they want you to assume three six. So there's a lot of times I know very well that building is deeper than three six, but no one's checked. So it makes double the work for us because then when the excavator gets there and opens up, like we don't need all this, and then the owner's like, "Oh, you overdesigned," and it's like, "Well, I have to design for all these unknowns." So it's always better for us, you know, to do it after like once the building's down because usually there's a building there they have to demo. Okay. So when you go the old buildings there, you're, you're guessing on what the neighbors are, you're guessing what's underneath the old building. So until everything's down, you can kind of see, get a better idea. Okay. So do you ever have clients that try to keep the existing superstructure? So keep everything above grade and put a new foundation in? Or is that completely cost prohibitive? Yeah, we do that. We call it underpinning. So a lot of times that's we deal with that when a building has got no basement or they have a crawl space and they want to make a basement. So you do those, that in sections. But the interesting thing about underpinning is you cannot shore for underpinning. You have to do that in sections because if you think about in Chicago, the buildings maybe at most four feet apart, if you're lucky. If you're keeping the building and you're digging a basement, how can you get, you can't get a machine in there. You can't get the sheeting. So a lot of times we deal with that where people are like, well, I don't understand how you're not shoring. And I'm always like, well, tell me how you're going to shore. 
like I can design it, but you can't get it in there. <laughs> so yeah, basically you have to do like two or three foot sections. You dig out and you pour foundation and you skip two to three sections and then you keep doing that. But I've been involved in emergency situations where people didn't get an engineer and they just dug out the whole basement and literally dug out the whole basement and the building like falls into the hole because they've dug out below the whole foundation. Yes. Okay. What's the most, I guess, unexpected thing that has come up <laughs> either at the construction side or probably at the construction side would be my guess, but I guess I'll let you answer that. I mean, we've, we've found burnt stuff from the Chicago fire. We found all kinds of like crazy stuff in excavations. We found old buildings like old foundations under the building. So like the building before the building that you're removing, correct? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yeah. Someone built a new building. There was a property line and property line didn't put a foundation and just put their building onto the other person's foundation. So when we were demoing our building, we couldn't because it was supporting the neighbor. And it was, see in Chicago, we have a lot of party walls if the foundation's like right on the property line and both people use it. But this wasn't the case. The newer building was just a few years old and they didn't do a foundation or a wall or anything. They just took the exterior wall and made it their interior wall. So we've dealt with a lot of like foundations that are kind of intertwined with each other, buildings that they don't have foundations. I've seen a lot of the neighbors' buildings where well, it looks like they have found their basement, they have windows, but they don't have any foundations. A lot of these old buildings are built like basically on tree trunks and they're these big wood tree trunks just embedded in the dirt, no foundation. And then the building's just built on them. So I've also seen like, you know, when I get called on an emergency things where, you know, people, you know, it baffles me. Like they'll just, they'll put it like we were talking about a sheet piling going down and then embedding it, you know, it has to embed. So it has some passive force. Seeing people like call and say, well, you know, we have a seven foot dig and we used a six foot sheet. And I'm like, how I'm very confused on this, you know, but I've seen it. And then they collapse and then, you know, then it's everyone's involved, the neighbors, the city. And, and then I have to come up with a solution, which is probably five times more expensive than if they would have done it right the first time. So we, I see all different kinds of things. What would be your words of advice or what would be your advice for like a homeowner that is looking at a site and looking at doing a new build on an existing site, I guess through the lens of earth retention, what would be your words of advice for them? Well, if you're planning on building a new building and you want a deep basement, I mean, if your neighbors both have shallow basements, you really have to allow, you know, make sure you consider the cost you're going to have to pay to to assure that because I think that's when people are budgeting and doing buildings my husband's also he's a contractor so he always tells me like when he goes bids against other people a lot of contractors don't put shoring in there now this earth retention cost can be 200,000 in some of these buildings so when you're building a house a lot of these bids you're going to get hit with a $200,000 bill later on it's a, it's a lot of money so but on the flip side of that I know a lot of owners, like, you know, they get hit with this cost. They don't want to spend it. They don't want to pay. But I've seen, I've been involved in a lot of lawsuits as an expert. I've involved as an engineer. If 
these things happen and then the neighbor starts to like it's going to cost you way more and they go on for years so it's like really this is an important part of building a home yeah well and i can't help but think as you're talking natalie like people are putting multi-million dollar structures on top of this and like if you don't have a solid foundation like you don't have a good structure at all so like you could use the like fanciest countertops and the fanciest tile but it's gonna start cracking and look like crap if it's not adequately supported so the beginning phases you never see these measures that are taken to protect your structure and to support it from the get-go but it's so important yeah i mean i do on off of earth retention i do a lot of inspections forensic inspections and so many people buy remodeled homes and then everything starts cracking and they're like, we don't know why. And then I go in the basement and I look under the floor and I'm like, well, you know, I don't know why they didn't fix this floor. So a lot of times it's kind of the same type of thing of what you're saying is that contractors will or people will remodel the house and just do cosmetic but not fix the structure. And they put these big marble islands in and big granite and then everything just sags to the middle and they don't know why. And it's like, well, I mean, I go in these basements and I'm like, this is obvious, but this is what I do for a living. So, you know, I have to point these things out. But, you know, same thing. It's like you have to prep. You have to make sure your foundation's good. You have to make sure you're protecting the neighbors or you'll just have a lot of problems, you know, in the future. Yeah. And it's not just a simple fix either. It's not just adding another floor, Joyce. (laughs) No, it's not a simple fix. It's a nightmare when these things happen. So what would you say is the most fascinating thing that you've encountered? I deal with a lot of contractors and excavators that, you know, we've done this a billion times. Why do we have to do this? And a lot of times nothing happens. Like I'll say you need to do this and that and they won't and it'll be fine. I think it's really an unknown thing with shoring because we're doing the numbers and these are very expensive systems and no one wants to put them in, but they're necessary. No, that's so fascinating. And it all comes down to risk, right? Like I think so many things that we do never see their full design load, but sometimes they do. And that's where, you know, like people that have homes that are in hurricane prone regions or earthquake prone regions, like you sleep better at night if you know that it's been designed to handle those kind of worst case scenarios. And the same thing with earth retention, like that contractor and the homeowner, like hopefully it gives them peace of mind knowing that it's been adequately designed for what could be the worst case scenario. Yeah, I guess that's that's what I was trying to get at is a lot of times I'll see I'll see a foundation where they dug straight down and you can see the footing up at three foot six and they've done ten feet and nothing's happened. Everything's fine. But then I see where, you know, maybe they dug one foot deeper, three feet away, and there's a problem. So it's, you know, all these soils, it's so unknown. It's so much guesswork and so much estimation and your best, you have to do everything a little conservative, but you don't want to like, I get not spending 200 grand when you don't need to. So I, I've also like, built my own home and, and dealt with this where I get like, oh, I don't want to spend a hundred grand shoring that because it's such a waste of money, but it's not a waste of money. You have to do it. And, you know, there's always the people that don't do it and get away with it. And there's all the, always the people that try to do it the right way and they still have problems. 
you know, there's so many factors. Will this really see all the load? You know, you're checking it for a fully loaded house with all fully, you know, all the materials. And then you have to put extra load on the sidewalk, which is never going to happen. But the chances, the one time it does happen and then there's problems. Mm -hmm. Well, and so as you're talking, Natalie, I'm thinking of an analogy of like, a high rise building and a rooftop patio or a balcony and not having a railing and someone saying, well, I'm never going to go out to the end of this. Like, I don't need a railing. I'm not going to walk all the way to the end of it. I plan on staying three feet away from the edge all the time. So I don't need to pay for that railing because I'm not going there. But like, yeah, (laughs) you still need the railing because something could happen. You could have someone over like you still need the railing. And I think that goes for you know, kind of this first phase earth retention work too. Like you still have to support the soil so that it doesn't cave in. (laughs) So, you know, we've gotten to the point we've done this so much and for so many years that we have to be very cautious. Everything has to have notes. There has to be contracts signed. We won't do anything without a contract signed. We won't, you know, in the beginning when we first started, it was more like, okay, yeah, I'll do this for this amount of money. And then, you know, but now it's, gotten so involved in everything that we have to really protect ourselves and everything has to be in writing you know just have to be so careful because I've seen things happen been involved in things that happened I've been the expert on the other side I've been hired by neighbors when their neighbor is digging a hole so you know these can get very you know litigious these can get very they're all they're very risky yeah I am also seeing this as like what an opportunity you are giving to homeowners because without doing that, without like temporarily shoring their soil, they wouldn't get to have a basement in these tight lots. So it's increasing their leasable space or I guess in a homeowner's standpoint, like their usable square footage for resale value by allowing them to go down. Yes, exactly. I mean, especially in Chicago, like, you know, you're restricted by so much square footage. And if your basement is more than half the half the distance underground, that square footage doesn't count against you. So, you know, it gives just exactly what you're saying, more usable space, more space, you know, if you're selling more, you know, sellable space. But yeah, I mean, there's things that go along with that. So you can't just say, I want all of this, but I don't want that. It just doesn't work like that. You have to give them something. So, I mean, I get it. I built homes. And I didn't want to spend the money either. Like I get it. Like you're, you're building a home. You're thinking about all these finishes and all this great stuff you're going to put inside. You could really use that $100,000 that you're now putting in the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's ne- you're never getting back. So right. I understand and I, I try to be conscious of that. I try not to over-design. But I also have to protect myself, the neighbors, the, you know, the city. We have to make sure that we're doing the best we can. Yeah, that should be also peace of mind for the contractor and the homeowner that if an engineer is involved, like we're essentially putting numbers to what's happening in real life or in the field. So like there's that level of protection there and that level of safety there. But, you know, I mean, we deal with a lot of excavators and contractors we know in the city all understand and we're all on the same page. So it's, you know, thankfully, as time goes on, people are getting more educated on this and it's not, it doesn't come up, you know, all the time, but it does come up where the owner will call. Well, my contractor said, we don't need this. And it's like, you do need this. Yeah. 
So getting it worked into the budget from the get-go, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't happen a lot of times because it's just, it's not a, if you think about um, statements and budgets, it's not a, usually on there because it's not, it's really a city type of thing. You don't see this in the suburbs. You don't see this when you have a lot of space. Right. So it's, it's very specific, like a very location specific thing. Yeah. Okay. So if you could give Earth Retention a theme song. What would it be? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I was thinking more like of a song that screams like frustration. Another one bites the dust. <laughs> Using humor. When I see them, I drive by and I see no shoring and thinking, what is that person doing? And then like the next day I get a call. We need you. Emergency. I'm like, another one. <laughs> another one bites the dust. <laughs> All right. Well, how do you recharge? Like, what do you do to like, that's not engineering that kind of recharges you so that you can do the engineering stuff? I mean, outside of work, I travel a lot, which is nice because I own my own business. So I'm able to do that. Travel a lot. We do a lot of outdoor sports, snowboarding. We have a lake house, so we go water skiing. You know, I like to do outdoor things. And me and my daughter love Disney. So we go to Disney several times a year. Oh, fun. Disney World and Disneyland. Like we go to the parks. So we do that a lot. A lot of travel. Love it. That's awesome. Well, Natalie, thank you for coming on today and sharing your expertise about earth retention. This has been very informative. I think it'll be helpful for homeowners that are in dense locations and also for contractors and architects and other structural engineers like ourselves. So thanks so much for being here today. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges. 
demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.